it's safe to say that with all the challenges that we've got, um, when I accepted the invitation to come speak, I sort of looked at all the economic sectors out, out there and I thought, well, you know, energy's pretty stable. That's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> I had no idea the gas was, uh, the oil was going to go above $100 and the Middle East was going to implode and that uh, really the future of uh, energy policy and, and energy as we know it is going to be uh, largely affected by uh, what happens in the Middle East, at least on the short term. And to quote Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go without the opportunity that comes along with it. So if there's ever been a great opportunity to get energy policy, now's the time as America watches. I'm, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, everybody has a high expectations now that we've seen a shift in the political makeup in Washington. Well, let me let a little air out of the balloon. We control the House. We do not control the Senate. We do not control the White House. We're not in charge. Um, I'll talk a little bit about strategies uh, as I go on. But I, I, I just think you can't lose focus of that. Um, this is a, a time to talk about bold things if, in fact, you've got a possibility or a pathway to do it. If not, then we will replicate a lot of things that we did in 1995 when we did have the House and the Senate, and we set expectations at an unreasonable level for the American people, even though Congress probably performed pretty well with a Democrat in the White House. In the eyes of the American people, we failed. And over a period of time, that chipped away at us. I'm sure there were personalities involved. The issues were different. There's been no more challenging time in my lifetime than what the American people are going through right now. And day to day, the biggest challenge in their life changes. Last week, uh, it may have been something different than gasoline. Today, it's gasoline prices. And uh, thank goodness they're offset to some degree, Rick, by the low natural gas prices. By the same standpoint, you in the room, many that are in the utilities industry, are going to make decisions based upon the cost of fuels which may not be the best long-term decision for the United States. So it, it, it begs for a, a blueprint for where we go with energy policy. Now, you got to understand what Beverly didn't tell you, but many of you know my dad was Presbyterian minister. He believed that it was important to expose his children to all religions. And uh, even though I was Presbyterian, trust me, we've got a lot of Baptists in North Carolina. And I remember one summer he took me to a Baptist revival. Now, I'm not going to ask how many are Baptists here, but Jim can attest to this. Baptist preachers miss their calling. They should have been meteorologists because a year in advance they could pick the hottest week of the summer to hold. <laughs> and that revival was always on concrete, under a tent, and it kicked off uh, at the hottest part of the day. And this Wednesday night, this preacher had hit a Saturday stride. I mean, he was in full, full mode. And the preacher looked down in the crowd. He said, Robbie, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And Robbie said, yes, sir, preacher. He said, come up on stage. Looked down at Shelby and said, Rick, do you want to go to heaven when you die? He said, yes, sir, preacher. He said, come up on stage. Looked over at councilman. Councilman, do you want to go to heaven? He said, no, sir, preacher. He said, you don't want to go to heaven when you die? He said, when I die, sure. I thought you were getting a group up to go today. <laughs> Now, 
What what best describes the obstacle that's in front of us from a standpoint of getting the right legislation passed? It's sharing with people that we're going to do it now. What's the tendency of the American people? They're all for it until they find out we're going to do it tomorrow. Think about that. And that's the test that we're going through right now as it relates to spending in the deficit. Um, they're all for cutting spending and reducing debt. But let me, let me just give you some hard cold facts. We're going to spend $3.7 trillion this year. We're going to collect $2.2 trillion. We're $1.5 trillion short. Eliminate all discretionary spending. Eliminate all defense spending, all security spending. You're still $200 billion short of balance. What's the takeaway? You cannot, as a country, become fiscally responsible unless you reform Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Period, end of sentence. Uh, anything less than that means that you're going to hit the proverbial wall at some point, and the difference from any other decade that we went through an economic downturn, this is the first time we've ever been part of a global economy when we did it. The Bush administration, when we went into a slight downturn in 2001, post 9-11, was extremely smart to get that over with as quickly as they could in large measure because we didn't know what the impact was going to be as a, a participant in the global marketplace. What do I mean by that? We can do everything right. But if the dominoes that fall in Japan because of 200 percent of debt to GDP, if the prop up of six European countries, if Germany decides tomorrow, you know what, we'll take our losses that our banks have loans out in European countries, but we're not going to prop them up anymore because that's just a, an endless cost. And Merkel's probably looking at it saying, I've got to win re-election. What do I do? Don't for a minute believe that when those dominoes fall, they don't affect us. Japan will affect us in our cost of service and our debt when they go to the international market for the first time versus internalizing their debt. The economies of Europe mean that the export opportunities for U.S. businesses are going to be diminished. And we're not going to pick all of that up in South America or, or Australia. The realities are that we're headed for some very, very difficult economic times. So this may be more the norm than the exception as to where we are. The one area that we can have an impact on the comfort level of the American people is to give them some certainty as it relates to energy cost. What's it going to cost me to run my household? What's it going to cost me to get to and from work every week? They're going to make decisions based upon vacations that are snapshots at any point in time. But there's certain things that they've got to pay and they've got to use. And that's one area that we can bring the type of certainty that I think um, is absolutely essential to them. Now, I would tell you that we've got to establish what our goal is for energy. I dare say none of us in the room could tell us what the national goal is for energy today. Um, if you listen to the president one day, it's energy independence. The next day, it's job creation. The next day, it's an ideological coup. It can't be all three. It's got to be one. It's got to be one thing. And without a, a known goal, it's pretty tough to paint a picture for the American people. Here's where we're going. 
And the reality about the, uh, reality about the energy sector is every American's affected by it. But more importantly, you can't get across the goal line unless the American people are right behind you going the same direction. That's why it's absolutely vital that whatever we do be clear enough and understandable enough that the American people buy into it and believe there's long-term merit. Uh, many of you know Saxby and I introduced a bill last, last year that we'll reintroduce this year. It's not perfect. It addresses a lot of things that I think are important and many in the room think that are important to restart the nuclear generation in this country. Not building three plants, hopefully building 30 and more. Uh, let's accept what Boone Pickens says about natural gas. I'd much rather put natural gas in 18-wheel vehicles than to put it into baseload electricity, long term. But let me assure you, if we don't allow companies to predictably build nuclear generation plants, they will succumb to the cheap cost of natural gas today and the cookie cutter uh, process that's been developed of building natural gas fired generation. And it will become part of base load. Um, so once we paint the picture, we've got to structure a process to get there. Once that process is in play, uh, we've got to play to our strength. Nuclear coal, natural gas. I'm not telling you that we're not going to be advocates of wind or solar or geothermal or tidal or whatever we can get, but we're all realists. And when you look at fully developed technology in all of those areas, we may get up to 12% of our energy needs. That's about it. And if you listen to the White House, you'd believe that wind and solar alone could replace every fossil fuel that we use and that we can be a fossil fuel country. And we know that's not true. But more importantly, the path to get there is so prohibitively expensive to get to the 12%. The strategy should be incorporate what technology allows us to do today if the market conditions say it's possible. So, Saxby and I will have that basket of renewables and it will be driven based upon what mark the market conditions are. Truthfully, if I was king for a day, I'd probably include tomorrow ethanol under the Highway Trust Fund, make them pay the tax. It would boost the infrastructure money. But at some point, ethanol needs to play as a market condition product into our fuel stream. It has to. Um, it, we can't construct an energy future for this country that is subsidized or orchestrated by the federal government policies that are in place. And it, the sooner we realize that, the better off we're going to be and the, the more likely we're going to get buy-in from the American people. Um, I look at my friends in the House and I see a great opportunity. Bold things are not going to emanate from the United States Senate, let me assure you. <laughs> but I, I, th I think we have to be realists. The House is in the position to do one of two things, to propose and pass bold ideas or to block really bad ideas from finding their way to the White House. For those things that are bold ideas, if they look back and there's not an industry following them, guess what? 
it won't go anywhere. For those things that they propose that are bold and they find an army behind them willing to spend the money, willing to mobilize the people around the country, willing to take on the responsibility of part of the education, I don't think you can underestimate with 22 Democrats and one socialist in the Senate up for re-election what you might be able to accomplish as you get closer to November of 2012. So though I'm, I'm a guy that's not as optimistic as I'd like to be today because of all the market forces that are playing against us, I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel on certain certain sectors of our economy if we're patient enough and thoughtful enough about how we go after that end goal. Now, let me just give you one idea of sort of what I've been thinking about as it relates to the EPA. Uh, I'm not sure what you call what EPA is doing today. Destruction of America, that might be a, a good term. Uh, how about we combine the EPA with the Department of Energy? How about we do away with the EPA and we put the EPA in where Department of Energy is responsible for one side of the policy, EPA is responsible for the other side, and they're going to have the internal battle before they come out and propose something. Maybe actually Department of Energy would hold them responsible to do a cost-benefit analysis of any regulation that they're getting ready to propose. See a lot of blank stares. Yeah, you know, my staff looked at me the same way when I mentioned it last week. <laughs> but you know what? We might not stop there. How about we combine labor with commerce? How about we take education and put it back in health and human services and go back to HEW? Look at the Bowles Commission report. You've got to cut 300,000 federal workers. That's part of his $4.1 trillion reduction in spending. Now, you, we might accomplish it with all of these agencies and secretaries and administrators. But I can assure you we've got a hell of a lot better chance if we start merging them together because the American people will understand if you merge them together, you don't need near the size of bureaucracy in Washington. Reach the efficiencies that private business did when they were faced with the challenge. We've got to use common sense as to how we go forward. But I will assure you this, just raise that issue and make it look like we're going to have a vote on it. And I believe that EPA is going to be so consumed with trying to kill the effort to merge them, they're not going to have time to put out new regulations. <laughs> so in large measure, this is about how we stop the deterioration in its tracks. And I will assure you, when you control one of the bodies, the threat of combining an agency because we control the purse string is very real and will have a very real impact on uh, those individuals whose job is reliant on the independence uh, of that particular agency. Last thing, I'm reminded of what Thomas Jefferson said. I'm not an advocate of frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must advance to keep pace with the progress of the human mind. Um, in that, I don't think that Jefferson ever envisioned that we would set policies for where we thought technology would go or where we thought the human mind would take us. They changed it to reflect the progress at that point in time of the American people and of research and development. So 
getting back to something that Ed said about green jobs, and I wholeheartedly endorse what he said, uh, the administration has made this a panacea for job creation. Whatever you create has to have a market. And the market has, and the product has to be competitive in that market. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands of how many companies are um, investing in wind and solar today. But you're not doing it with the belief that you can produce electricity out of wind and solar at the same cost you can nuclear generation or what you can do with coal-fired plants or what you could do with natural gas-fired plants. Uh, you're doing it because you're scared. Some cases, Robbie, you may have enough sunlight out there where you are that it, some of it makes sense. But the truth is, we will always have a transmission challenge as it relates to that. And unless we're willing to go out and make everybody pay into something that they're not benefiting from, then it makes the rollout of wind and solar in any huge capacity no more than a regional benefit. It is certainly not a national benefit, but never really reaches above 12% of the total, even if fully implemented. So we've got some challenges. I think uh, we can address them. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that an energy bill is achievable in the next 18 months. But we don't do things because they're not because they're achievable. We do them because we need it and it's the right thing. And I would tell you we can't send any better message right now to the Middle East, to anywhere else around the world, to the Chinese, than America has finally decided that we've got a goal for energy, we've got a plan to get there. And it may turn into a two or three year national debate. At the end of the day, we'll have the right policies if we do this in a methodical and thought through way. Let me open.